0: Hello fellow movie lovers and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson.
1: And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are reviewing Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira. exactly what I was hoping
0: you yeah. would do. I'm so proud.
1: See, now now that you know the reference, it makes sense. <laughs> it
0: does make sense. Okay, before we get into the synopsis and everything, are you Tetsuo or Canada? Which team are you?
1: Canada. I, I, any, uh, yeah. Anybody who's team Tetsuo, like, has problems and should probably be in therapy.
0: Just like the people who over-identify with um, Holden Caulfield. <laughs>
1: I was going to say the Joker, but yes.
0: (laughs) Also, Also accurate.
1: You know. (laughs)
0: so andy for those of us who skipped the movie what is akira about
1: okay so for those of you who skipped the movie akira is the story of tetsuo and kanada two young members of a biker gang living in the futuristic city of neo tokyo after a bike accident involving a young psychic boy hospitalizes tetsuo the pair are thrown into a complex struggle for the soul of the city involving military coups telekinesis and oh so much blood as Kaneda joins a revolutionary movement and Tetsuo gains psychic powers of his own, both sides and the Japanese government all fight over the fate of the mysterious and godlike Akira. And so that's that's what Akira the movie's about, but like this just just to go into it a shade deeper for this, like Akira is a Japanese manga written by Katsuhiro Otomo, who also, you know, wrote and directed the movie. And it is an eight year long epic. Like, like it is Game of Thrones, but a comic book. That is the level of complexity and characters who are introduced and later killed. And so the fact that this thing was squeezed into a two hour movie Regardless of anything else we're gonna say, both positive and negative, about the movie, that is impressive.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like taking Anna Karenina and putting it into an hour and a half long film and shoving it, shoving that <laughs> at mainstream movie theaters. Like it's just there's so much to capture. And I think if anything, that was the hardest time I had with it was there were large gaps that I'm I'm sure would make far more sense had i read the manga
1: right and yeah so to preface neither of us has read the manga um i've seen this i no, i had not but i mean no reason for you to apologize um (laughs) i've never read the manga i've seen this this was like the third or fourth time in my life i'd seen the movie so i was familiar with it in that sense Okay. But no, I've just I've never read the manga. It's sort of been, you know, one of those one of those things you always mean to do. But no, I, I think definitely any complaints you could make about the movie can pretty easily be rectified by explaining that, you know, not only was this like an epic that took eight years to write, but also it wasn't done when the movie came out. Like my understanding is katsuhiro otomo was writing akira the manga and then took a break because someone was like eh, if you make this a movie people will watch the movie and he was like oh okay sure let's go for it makes the movie and then picked the the comic the manga back up
0: oh so he kind of jar jar martin it.
1: yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, you know, he finished the, pro- the project in his lifetime.
0: I'm sorry. I need some sunglasses for all of the shade you're throwing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so but go ahead. It
0: kind of make well, I was going to say it kind of makes sense because the first two acts of the movie, I really loved and understood. And then the last act, I was like, what is happening? I don't understand. I'm very confused. There's a lot that's occurring that doesn't feel finely tuned. And I think that's a result of the manga not having been finished yet and Katsuro Otomo realizing that he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants as he
1: goes. A little bit, yeah. My, I, I did do a little bit of reading on it and my understanding is that the first half of the story is pretty much directly lifted from the book and then like the direct ending is the real ending of the story he hadn't written it yet but he knew what was going to happen and so it's like just they they kind of cut a middle half out of the manga and took the two bookends and made that into the movie and you know Changed things and and fleshed things out so that it would make more sense for a movie, because I completely agree. Like even seeing this a couple times, there is something around like the le- little less than half, little more than halfway mark, where the movie really starts to get muddy and very complex and very difficult to properly follow. Everything's just sort of happening at you without a lot of time to really process what's going on
0: so for for those of you who skip the movie the movie kind of linearly follows the path of tetsuo as he goes through discovering his own telekinetic powers discovering this underground i wouldn't even say society what would you call it
1: government conspiracy
0: there you go And he, and it's linear and it makes sense until we discover this kind of hidden entity called Akira. And that's really where the movie lost me, where it was where I thought Akira was a person, but it's more like this energy superhero, but also a monster, but it's not really a physical being.
1: Yeah, and it... it... It 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 does get very deep, and it is where it, the story divulges the most. Like, because in the manga, Akira is a character. Akira is this this super psychic, like godlike power, nearly omnipotent psychic boy, who basically like reforms himself out of nothing okay. and become there's there's all this new game of thrones is a good comparison there's all this power play going on in a city that is you know completely crumbling and breaking down and akira is kind of like the 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 thing everybody wants the MacGuffin because he is this child who can do basically anything he can we, he can will you away he can wish you into the cornfield he can keep people alive he can do all this stuff and in the movie like Akira was a boy who was eventually killed and dissected and his organs become like put in all these scientific vials. But at the same time, he basically gets like scientifically mummified, and all of his all of his organs and 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 veins and systems and all stuff all this stuff gets set in all these different jars. And yet somehow Akira is still like alive and powerful enough to bring the movie to an end. Like something we haven't talked about even that's very important. Akira opens with a nuclear explosion. You know, the very first thing you see is the 1988 Japan going being burned away in a ball of, you know, presumably nuclear hellfire. And kind of the story is Akira did that. Like this this psychic boy named Akira was experimented on by the Japanese government, gained these these supreme psychic powers went crazy with power and blew up the city Mm -hmm. and was somehow eventually put down, but was still like the ultimate culmination of human potential, especially human potential with psychic powers. And everybody starts trying to figure out, okay, how do we recreate that? That's where the government Mm -hmm. conspiracy and all these psychic children come into play if this is when you skipped like i get it because this is this is a brutal movie at times but it's also yeah. like so hard to talk about it with the understanding that there might be listeners who didn't get a chance to see akira this is this is a hard one to Hard one to hold your hand on.
0: (laughs) This is, yeah, this is going to be a lot of movies we have an easy time of. And then, you know, after this plot point happens, this happens, and we can kind of summarize for you. This is going to be a hard movie to summarize. Um, A bit. sorry about that, listeners. Yeah,
1: you know. it's. I mean, it's also, like, you know, we're going to talk about it later when we talk about it when it's cult, but this is, like, on a list of top five or maybe even top three movies anime movies you should see like I think this is squarely on both of those lists just for what it did for the genre but we'll get into that just just starting from the beginning like I love this I love the beginning of this movie the beginning of Akira is beautiful and fun and cool and awesome and dark and this is another one of those movies that my dad put on when I was four (laughs)
0: so donald Donald Boel, um I'm worried about your parenting skills, my bud.
1: Yeah. This should tell strange strangers who uh, don't know me personally a lot about me, and you know, I often wonder about like i'm I feel like I'm pretty desensitized when it comes to gore, and I wonder how much of a hand this movie played a part in that.
0: I imagine quite a bit,
1: well, you know. <laughs>
0: But you're right. The opening scene is stunning there. So Tetsuo and Canada are part of a a motorcycle gang. And so a lot of the opening scenes of this movie are driving through Neo Tokyo on the back of a motorcycle. And it is beautiful. It is so pretty and does such a great job of capturing exactly where we are and exactly what's happening. I don't think I've ever seen a better establishing shot than this
1: no i completely agree and i mean it's just you you know we can't talk enough in an audio medium about how damn pretty the opening couple of like like the first 10 minutes of this movie is this is unit 375 we've got reports of biker gangs fighting near the intersection of highway 14 south and really all the animation as a whole but especially in the opening like there is so much in every single frame there is so much detail there's so much stuff in the deep background there's so much going on this feels like the word i want to use is faster animation than say Mm -hmm. what studio ghibli was doing at the same time
0: oh absolutely and i think that's more like the tone of studio ghibli is take your time be slow notice everything whereas this you know in some in some uh what's the word stills? Frames? Frames, sure. Frames. Uh, sorry. In some frames it even is purposefully blurry because we're going so fast.
1: Yes. No, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. you know I think it's funny. So, you know, this is supposed to be like the the first ten seconds of this movie or 1988 and then we cut 31 years into the future to futuristic 2019. <laughs> hey.
0: Hey, here we are. Hello.
1: Yeah, you know, and and it, it, it's really funny to me, like, this movie predicted that Tokyo would get the 2020 Olympic Games. Like, that is just yeah. pure coincidence, which <laughs> is is awesome to me. Like, people even commented when Tokyo was awarded the Olympic Games being like, did y'all... Chelsea Akira. Um, it also predicted what's going on in Hong Kong. It just got the city wrong. Hey, Andrew.
0: Andrew, no. Andrew Richard. Andrew, Uh-oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. What's
1: um, going on
0: in Hong Kong is terrible and we hate
1: it. Absolutely. Free Hong Kong. But no, I mean, you know, jokes aside, this, this movie really, you're right. This movie sets up the the establishing factors of where we are we are in tokyo in the future we are in a future where we have like these super high-tech motorcycles but we still have dive bars with record players people have laser guns but you know that we also still have traffic jams and revolvers and i think that might be tied into why we're sitting here saying we like the first half of the movie so much it does such a good job of establishing all this framework which it kind of has to so that the movie can go batshit bonkers by you know the hour mark
0: that's a really good point there's a book by madeline lingall called a wrinkle in time and when you read it the first scene is like, the most cozy, most beautiful scene in all of children's literature. It's so lovely. It's a girl on a stormy night making hot chocolate with her brother and her mom. And there's nothing more basic and cozy than that. And the rest of the book is bonkers. And you kind of need that there is this moment of hot chocolate in the Murray's kitchen so the rest of the So the rest of the book can be bizarre and (laughs) tesseracting and going through time. And I feel like that's very similar with this movie of like, we needed the establishing shots. We needed to know that uh, Tetsuo and Canada are best friends from childhood and they go to this crappy school together where none of the teachers really care about their jobs and none of the students really care about school. We need to have all those, like, silly basics established so that the rest of the movie can be, oh, yeah, no big deal. The teddy bear just came to life and is dancing around the bedroom as propelled by a telekinetic eight-year-old.
1: Right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. (sighs)
0: Did you watch the dub or the sub?
1: So I watched um, the dub. Uh, there's interesting. Yeah, and I, I and you watched the sub, right? Yes,
0: because I'm a snob, and you know, I figured I wanted the original translation. I, so.
1: Which you know, I mean, hey, that's <laughs> that's incredibly fair and valid. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. I really now I've see I've never watched the sub at all. I think that's why I just immediately gravitated towards the dub was like because you know that was just familiar to me and you know like we we mentioned with my neighbor totoro how there are two dubbed versions there are also two dubs of akira there's like the 1992 american dub which was the one i watched when i was four and grew up with and then the one sure. I watched this time was actually the 2001 redub, which had just a, a who's who of voice actors. It was, it was very cool <laughs> for me to hear Johnny Young Bosch from the Power Rangers as Kanada, or um, Joshua Seth, who is Ty from Digimon, as Tetsuo. Uh, just very, very fun, very interesting.
0: <laughs> That's so. So, did you find yourself noticing that certain lines were different or certain, like, things were just not the not the Akira you remember. Because remember when we talked about Totoro, I was like, the thing I don't like about the Fanning Sisters dub is that there are so many lines that are different than
1: the way that i grew up with it yeah um so the biggest thing i noticed was actually i don't know if the lines were necessarily different but a lot of the delivery was different and maybe this Mm. is just like how i remembered it but i think in the original dub canada is a bit more adult and a bit more serious and in the version available on Hulu, the 2001, he is a lot more like juvenile and jokey and just a lot younger, which makes sense because I never quite realized that our two male protagonists are 15. So juvenile makes sense when you think of it that way.
0: Yeah. I, I am interested to hear that because in the sub version – I instantly got that Canada was like the joking funny guy like he was the cool kid and that Tetsuo was kind of like the moody like always trying to match up and be cool as his best friend but never really getting there and so when he gets telekinetic powers he's like oh hell yes I'm finally the cool one
1: right and, and you know Tetsuo, that that always followed through for me. And and, and maybe I'm just like totally misremembering, um, yeah. but no matter what, every time, even watching this as a kid, like the heart of this movie to me is Tetsuo versus Canada, and like yeah. it's probably the point of the movie. And I'm not being like nearly as personally profound as I think, but like just their dueling pathways around all of this. Insanity that's going on. All of this stuff is happening at Tetsuo, and Canada trying to just save his friend, save his buddy, and and it's like it's it. I'm I'm trying to figure out exactly what, if anything, Katsuhiro Otomo was like trying to say because I think there's a lot you could project into that. Certainly, a lot I did. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I got some Cain and Abel vibes, like two brothers fighting, but then you also think about it and these are two boys who have gone through a lot of shared trauma together because they I don't think either of them have parents they're in this orphan school they're in this bicycle gang because I don't think they have anyone else so there's this theme of like deep brotherhood and I think what what I brought to it was this is ultimately a battle kind of for tetsuo's soul and canada's trying to bring him back and say like don't don't become this don't become this evil don't become this thing
1: i think you're right like if i if i had to take a guess if i had to write a film paper on akira i think the thing i would (laughs) drive my nail into is like the concept of like power and power which is earned versus power which is given and like you know revolution is a is a core theme of the entire movie and just i think like like there's something about the idea of passive participation in like civil unrest and civic revolution versus voluntary like because that's the thing like everything that happens to tetsuo happens at him he is yeah. experimented on to the point where he develops these powers but like de- just getting these powers and then the fall is his character arc whereas canada is like seeking out the revolutionary group and key or sorry uh seeking out k and like growing as a person, growing into a man by making these choices. And so something in there. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I wonder too, if there's, you know, some, there's some world war II allegory in the fact that everyone wants Akira, wants once that power and ability is unleashed onto the world, and it kind of reminds me of the Cold War panic of, like, oh, suddenly after America dropped the A-bomb, that was a possibility in the world. And suddenly everyone was scrambling to get the ability to make an A-bomb so they could protect themselves. And so I wonder, you know, since it's a Japanese movie, since it's set... Um, where it is, I wonder how much of the commentary is about World War II.
1: Right, especially because it's Japan, you know, it is yeah. there. there is one nation that had atomic weaponry done to them.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, you know, that's the nation that is our context for the, not even just the setting of this movie but the creation of this movie.
0: Well, and you, you keep talking about how Tetsuo is having everything happen at him he gets experimented on just the way Akira got experimented on and it kind of makes me um, think about you know the, the victim hood of, sure. of Japan and how like it happened to them like we and our country did this to Japan and so I wonder if there is this greater kind of coping with what do you do with ownership when something like this happens to you does that make sense no
1: it absolutely does and i i I suspect without having looked too terribly into this that you're right you know i'm looking it up now katsuhiro otomo was born in 1954 so obviously that was well after the attacks but he was the right age for his parents to have lived through hiroshima and nagasaki and to you know have their own stories to tell their son and for him to gain these uh thoughts want to tell these stories um yeah so, I no, I mean, there, without a doubt, there is a theme, there is this specter of, like, atomic destruction. And this Tokyo we're presented, Neo-Tokyo, you know, it's a city that is, for all intensive purposes, blown up three times over the span of, like, 120 years. You know, the, the atomic bomb in 1984, or uh, 1984, Jesus. Uh, the atomic bomb... You know, during World War II, the nuclear explosion that starts the movie in 1988, and then at the end of the movie, Akira's second whatever it is, you know, it it destroys Neo Tokyo. So
0: yeah,
1: absolutely. Like whether whether we're hitting on what exactly was he was trying to say, he was definitely trying to say something in regards to atomic destruction and nuclear weaponry and all of that
0: yeah yeah for sure
1: and you know you had something while we're on the subject you you had a note that I I really want you to touch more about on about visiting Japan
0: oh so um my sister my older sister Becky lived in Japan for three years and we went to go visit her and one of the things I was privileged enough to see while I was there was the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum which is stunning and difficult um, especially as an American because it, it's hard not to feel a lot of white guilt Sure. Um, or American guilt as the case may be <laughs> um, but it is it is so cool is not the right word it is so touching it is so moving and one of the most moving things about it is that um, there is an entire section devoted to the damage the bomb did, and it's broken up into sections um, about the heat rays, the damage that the blast did, and the damage that the radiation did, mm. and the effects that each had on the buildings and the infrastructure, plants and mineral life, in their residence. and the uh, residents. And I wasn't when I went in two thousand nine; it wasn't there, but they recently redid it so that the map of the city that's in the floor of the museum now has projection mapping okay to demonstrate the effect of the bombing so it's i looked at images online so i could more accurately talk about it but it's like an overlay so you can see what originally hiroshima looked like and then you can kind of watch the city fall wow and uh every year hiroshima holds a ceremony to pray for the peaceful repose of the victims, for the abolition of nuclear weapons, and for lasting world peace. During the ceremony, the mayor issues a peace declaration directed towards the world at large. As long as the need persists, Hiroshima's mayor will continue to issue these declarations calling for the elimination of nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. This is part of Hiroshima's effort to build a world of genuine and lasting world peace where no population will ever again experience the cruel devastation suffered by Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that's from the Hiroshima Peace Declaration website. But, so their mission in crafting this memorial was to say, like, to, I, I mean, I know a lot of Americans after 2001 walked around saying, never again, never again. But this is truly, like, the whole city has this declaration of, no, this is why we have this, so that we can absolutely say never again will this happen. Sure. So I, th- I bring all this up because I wonder how much that was in the mind of the creator as he was making the movie of making the movie, making the manga of just I want to show even in a fairy tale science fantasy setting of how devastating this could be well what do you think
1: i'm just in awe i mean it, even even hearing you recounted it, it's incredibly powerful and like i you know i don't know i imagine he had to have been carrying that same mindset, you know, they're because like yeah. I'm thinking about like there's no other movie I can think of, let alone an animated movie. Like there's no other movie that just has like we get destroyed we rebuild we get destroyed we get rebuild you know if 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 we're watching a movie about a nuclear apocalypse hellscape it's it's just that it was like all the nukes went off and now we're radiated and fight over water and gasoline this movie akira like just japan alone Tokyo alone is, like, destroyed and rebuild, destroyed and rebuild. So on the one hand, there's, like, this sense of the perseverance of humanity, but, and especially so tying it into the Hiroshima Declaration, like, this is an imagined world where we can't burn away the corruption. No matter how many times our world is destroyed, we have all these... Corrupt leaders making power plays and trying to divvy up the piece of the pie for themselves until we blow ourselves up again.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, what did you think of that scene where all those gentlemen were sitting around the table? um, Hold on, I wrote the name down. Uh, The executive council. The room of old men around a round table where they're talking about government spending as... Literally, like testing is going on on these telekinetic kids, and the world's about to come to atomic downfall. Yeah, and there are these old white men sitting around a table talking about government spending.
1: Yeah, I mean it was <laughs> it was the most prescient thing I, I saw in the movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Yeah. <laughs> hard to hard to keep a laugh going on there while wow. our own, but like but really, I mean like, you know, it's so weird. There's so much going on right now. It it feels like we so many different countries are reaching a boiling point and a boiling over point. You know, we've got what's going on, on we've got what's going on in Hong Kong. We've got riots in Chile. There are you know, I could list off a dozen other countries. It feels like every month there's another one. And, you know, this movie starts, you know, within that same 10 minutes that we still haven't even really gotten out of, um, you know, there's rioting going on, there's protesting going on all throughout the movie, there is civil unrest and you have this, it's not even really the 1%, but it's like, you know, the, the council of leaders where we get Colonel Shikishima who you know is one of the key villains of the story you know making a literal military coup and everybody else is you know basically telling him you can't make a coup but that's all they're doing is they're just they're telling him he can't do it as he's walking out the room being like okay i'm gonna go have me a coup you've got the the short bald dude mr nezu who is playing both sides you know he's on that same council he's talking about you know what to do with the city but he's also like the financier for the revolutionary movement and is trying to you know play both sides so that no matter what he winds up on top and we see how that goes for him open your eyes and look at the big picture You're all puppets of corrupt politicians and capitalists! Uh (laughs) You know, speaking of real quick, I watched this when I was four. And just to list off a couple of firsts, this was the first time I saw cartoon blood. This is the first time I saw any blood. This Uh is the first time I saw somebody get assaulted. Uh, And this is the first time, speaking of Mr. Nezu, I saw somebody have a heart attack. (laughs) So... (laughs) Again, it's, you know... you it's not super uh surprising that i do this podcast and watch these movies <laughs> Uh, meanwhile
0: this is a great re-education for me because as andy can attest to so many movies in my life people will say you've never seen insert movie here and i'm like no (laughs) because i was a sheltered sweet baby
1: (laughs) indeed Your, your parents cared if you were in the room while people were getting shot up with laser guns and uh all the other horrible stuff
0: I have a vivid memory of Mars Attacks being on the TV sure. because my brother was watching it and me like, my mom being like, go out," or my dad asking me like, go ask Mike if he wants this or this for lunch. And I was like, no. And my dad was like, why not? And my mom was like, she's afraid of the movie. So I have a vivid memory of being afraid of Mars Attacks.
1: <laughs> fair, fair, absolutely Fair.
0: So this is the comparison we get. You watched this when you were four and I was terrified of Mars attacks. And I think, um, (laughs) E.T.
1: Well, I mean, E.T.'s terrifying for completely different reasons.
0: He looks dead.
1: Especially the part where he's almost dead.
0: Well, yeah. (laughs) Speaking Speaking of things that look shriveled and dead, the telekinetic kids in this movie uh real
1: horrifying looking yeah just very unsettling and that's not even when they're conjuring up nightmare fuel um i don't know what the deal is i've never known what the deal was other than clearly like it's stuck in my brain all this time that like the image of these three children they're children they have children's voices but they are shriveled and old and benjamin buttoned and elderly and yes like, and they're terrifying. <laughs> they really are. And it's not their fault. You know, they're they're kind of like the heroes of the movie when you really think about it. All things considered, they're these three poor kids who didn't ask to be born with psychic gifts and were, you know, government pawns all their lives until they nobly sacrificed themselves to save one dude. But like I never understood if it was like is it a side effect of the psychic powers and that's why they're old? Or no, okay, wait, this flashback shows that they were around in the 80s. Are they just supposed to have age? But, hmm, no, because they would have been like 50 and they all look like their their faces are 90 and their bodies are 10. So, <laughs> I, I, you got me, Katsuhiro.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's um, the effect of... The atomic events? Yeah. Because they've lived through all of them. I think they're the only characters who have lived through all of them.
1: Yeah, that's a perfectly... uh, Like, that is another perfectly valid guess. I don't have the answer, but I like that. I I would totally accept that if we decided that was, like, headcanon. (laughs) They terrify me. Like...
0: They're really scary. They reminded me of Simon from the Justice League. Sure. <laughs> like, the whole telekinetic battles that they have. They're, they're really scary. Well,
1: yeah, they're really scary. And, like, even scarier is just the way that Akira, the movie, like, plays around with hallucinogenic stuff like so th- so you know Tetsuo goes to the hospital and it's it's the second time he's in the hospital after he gets repicked up mm-hmm. by the government where like they they do say straight up like we've we've done something to him we've unlocked his power and like mm-hmm. you know it's the moment where he's drinking water and then all of a sudden his stuffed animals are dancing around the room like I always thought that was supposed to be a fever dream and mm-hmm. that like made it so much worse because uh, who likes a fever dream? I hate them. Um, mm-hmm. And just like the image of the teddy bear growing and expanding and bleeding milk or whatever is going on. Like scary, not my Oscar, sure. but scariest teddy bear in animation, I think. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's so much careful consideration paid in this movie. So I love that. I love that. Um, And that there's one tell that's left behind to show that that scene absolutely did happen. Like, I think something's misplaced or in a different part of the room than it originally was. There's at the end of the movie, when Tetsuo is in his final battle, he goes up to space to stop a satellite and there's no sound because there is no sound in space. And it's like there's so many beautiful very carefully considered moments in this movie that are just so well executed.
1: You're right. You're absolutely right. And you know, you know, we 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 touched on the fact how this movie absolutely gets like muddy and, and chunky or, or or hard to follow, whatever you want to use, there's, there's definitely something that I think you can point to and say this is a flaw, if not in the movie, at least in the delivery system of this story. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can't say that this wasn't, like, completely thought out in every way. Just, you know, from the animation where there's so much going on to, like, you're talking about, all these tiny little story details. You know, there's the moment where... Canada has the laser rifle and like shoots Tetsuo and it, sins, it singes his shirt but then the battery runs mm-hmm. out like just the, the, the that two second sequence where like you see the beam go through and Tetsuo's like uh but then it disappears and you see the little hole in his shirt and it's just it's so detailed and pristine in that way
0: yeah for sure
1: you know the the style of this movie as a whole is so great you know from yeah. from the the word go seeing Canada in the bar and that iconic red jacket with the pill on it like <laughs> the fashion in this movie works it worked in 1992 mm-hmm. it works in 2019 as like realistic future clothing that is still somehow like 80s retro chic but also 2019 futurists like i i there's this movie is such a visual treat
0: yeah i like how they play with time a lot like you said there is there's bars where there's still record players but it's also a very futuristic bar there's canada's motorcycle which is just the coolest thing The coolest thing. The
1: coolest thing.
0: And, but at the same time, there is this feel of, um, everything is exactly the same as it always has been. Like, I said that the high school gives me breakfast club vibes. Because there is all these, like, walls and walls of lockers, and the kids hop out of this grimy window to escape class, and time is a very loose concept in this movie and i think it's because the same thing keeps happening over and over again
1: yeah and you know that's that's such an interesting commentary on what the future is you know you you grew up in florida you've been to disney you've been to epcot you know for those of you who don't know at epcot there is this little ride you can take that is basically or no it's not even epcot it's tomorrowland at tomorrowland there's this little ride where you just kind of drive around in a cart above people's heads and one of the things you drive by you go through this little tunnel and you see these little model representations of what walt disney thought like 1999 was going to look like and it is so much more space age than even 2019 is you know i I just looked it up because i needed to know blade runner also takes place in 2019 and that's a 2019 (laughs) with flying cars and cyborgs and like it is so much more future than akira yes akira has futuristic elements with laser guns and you know psychic people and a a little bit you know the fantastical is still fantastic but the rest of it is so much more grounded in reality and like we said you know gets a lot right we made a joke of it but this is one of the most accurate representations from over 25 years in the future of what modern times for us looks like long live the freedom revolution <laughs>
0: Except hopefully hopefully in the future there's more than three women.
1: <laughs> yes, so you you want to talk about that.
0: There there is three women and what, what their the? names all start with K. <laughs> <laughs> We have uh, Kyoko, who is the psychic child who can um, basically... She's telekinetic. She, her power is that she's basically like a human telephone. I don't know if there's a short word for that. And then we have Kaori, a woman that's casually sexually harassed and then rejected completely by her boyfriend Tetsuo for no reason. And then Kai, a woman who's consistently objectified because she's both sexy, cool, and she's like the hot girl spy, (laughs) and that... that's it. that's it. Those are the only women we have and they never interact with the,
1: each other. You, you, you did you did miss one. You missed the first woman we see who is this woman at that bar who is clearly being accosted and uncomfortable by the man who is sharing the booth with her. So so there there, there is that character as well. I don't oh. know if her name starts with a K.
0: Probably does. Her name is probably just K. Yeah,
1: there yeah, you go. Yeah. You know. No, she's not even. Yeah. Uh, yes, oh. Katsuhiro um, can't give you a pass for that one. Social justice, one, two, three. Woo woo. I wanna be PC. Woo woo. It's just the way to be
0: for me and you. No, no,
1: no, no. You know that's we, that was our that was one of the things that didn't age well about Akira, and I want to ask your opinion on the other thing I I noticed. Okay. So I brought him up before. There's the character of Mr. Nezu, who is, you know, sure. the short, bald guy who has, like, rat teeth. And... hey,
0: okay. When you say rat teeth, what do you mean?
1: He has stereotypical buck teeth. Oh, no! And that is a visual stereotype of Japanese oh, no. people... But here's where I, I, I don't... Is it still racist if Japanese artists under supervision of a Japanese director created a Japanese character who has a Japanese stereotype? Ah. Is that still bad? And the proper answer is, is probably we aren't allowed to comment, but it, it definitely uh, caught my eye.
0: I'm, yes, yes. Cause it's. I mean, I'm trying to think of like an equivalent that I can comment on. It's still offensive when I, as a woman who was raised in Southern California, makes a valley girl reference or speaks in a valley girl accent. Sure. So, I don't. I don't know. I want to say yes. I guess. I, I don't mean, know. I lean
1: towards. I lean towards yes. Yeah. Sure. He's a villainous character. But, uh,
0: but why? Why does the villain have that offensive stereotype?
1: Right. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah I think. I think perhaps we found the two ways this movie didn't age well.
1: I think you're right.
0: <laughs> there's also this. This isn't a. That's how it. This isn't a. That's how this movie didn't age well. But there's this theme in the movie of hiding that I found really relevant. There are so many shots when the viewers only see half of what's happening, and there are so many moments of flitting shots, hallway to hallway, room to room. Tetsuo tries to hide from the other telekinetic children. And um, I wonder if that's kind of why we don't discover most of the plot until the end.
1: If not, I think that's probably a better reason. (laughs) (laughs) Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like it's then, it's either that or just Katsuhiro was like, uh, I mean they all end up here. I don't know. I like <laughs> your answer better.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I just I I wonder. I mean, now that I know the story behind how it was written, I'm sure it was more that of oh I don't know what this thing is, but I wanted to give it the credit of it seems like a theme of of information is very is held very closely to the chest.
1: Yeah. And no, I, I really do agree with that. You know, I mean, uh, my understanding is that Katsuhiro Otomo was initially kind of hesitant to do this project and was eventually like talked into it. And once he was talked into making a movie out of Akira, like it was an earnest thing for him to do so you know he he still tried to tell a story and as we've talked about on the show before when you an artist tell a story you then give it up for your audience to draw their own conclusions and to interpret from so you know we're drawing our conclusions and making our interpretations about the film
0: So, Andy, do you
1: like this movie? I love this movie. Like, like this movie has its flaws, absolutely. But just, like, this... Granted, it's probably because I was four, and there was a lot of new stuff. But, like, there's just so much about this movie that has stuck in my brain for my entire life, pretty much. You know? Just... um, There's just so much that sticks in my brain, you know? Like... Like Kanada with his red bike and his red jacket, or just like the the opening biker fight, the the red, red, red paint blood of of anybody, really. like the image of a laser beam going through somebody and then just rending them and destroying them. like, there are so many things that I just kind of stick in my mind in the background, like scary teddy bears or (laughs) giant flesh monsters that crush a girl to death. (laughs) But no, I, I really, I really do enjoy this movie and it is a landmark. You know, we, this, this movie, here's, here's my hot take. Akira is the pretty in pink of anime movies.
0: Oh, shit. Because
1: it came out in the 80s. It was groundbreaking for its time. Uh, It has a lot of iconic, pretty visual things that people remember. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for better or worse, became the groundwork for storytelling to improve upon. You know, I I think compared to your modern day, you know, Japanese anime movie... This The the plot is complex, the storytelling muddles through itself, but without this movie, we don't have the art form evolve into what we have nowadays. What about you?
0: I really, I, it was a lot. I enjoyed most of it. I won't say I loved it, but it was certainly one of the most enjoyable movies we've watched in a while.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that.
0: Yeah, I I there were aspects of it that I really really enjoyed. Um, I think it was a lot for me to take in, sure. <laughs> and I think I need to rewatch it. Um, and luckily for me, this is a movie that I actually think I would really enjoy rewatching because I think there's a lot that you are not gonna catch the first time around.
1: Absolutely, and no, I'm I'm glad to, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah,
0: and it's cult as
1: heck in in every way this is one of the cultiest cults. this is one of the cultiest cult movies that ever culted through cult fiction you know i was just kind of touching on it i i i seriously believe that without this movie we don't have anime as it is today and yeah. i think i said something similar about the ghibli films and uh, that is absolutely true but like specifically akira You know, this came out four years after Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which is Ghibli's first movie, but it was Akira that totally blew American audiences away. The movie was a flop in Japan, mostly due to the fact that it cost one billion yen, which was unheard of at the time, but somehow managed to find its own life in America thanks to -to direct-to-video sales. And you know, very very quickly, they made an American dub for American audiences who didn't want to, you know, actually have to be forced to read, God forbid. Um, but within two years, Akira had sold sixty thousand copies, making it mm-hmm. one of the highest-grossing movies of 1988, despite the fact that it was not in American theaters. Like wow. this is a benchmark for anyone who seriously likes anime and yeah there was a time in my life where i would have made fun of those people and i've since come around and people can like what they like i like anime i like this movie
0: yeah and i think without this movie you there are certain ghibli movies that you wouldn't have you would not have princess mononoke
1: sure without
0: this movie yeah because there's there's so much to the pair of them that feel really similar and i, I I think this movie was necessary to come first for us to have Princess Mononoke. I agree. So, my favorite quote in this movie, <laughs> Andy, was um, I don't know if this is in the dub as well, but in the sub, um, when the kids all jump out the window to skip class. Tetsuo says, "But what about my burning desire to study?" Right, and he says it so sarcastically
1: that I was just like, "Oh, you little shit." <laughs> yes, that was also in uh, in my version in in the dub, um, <laughs> and and I should have known that that line and and the whole school part would have resonated very highly with you. <laughs> Um, You know, you asked me earlier if anything had been changed between the, um, I think it was actually the 1989 dub, I said 1992 earlier, um, the 1989 dub and the 2001, and there actually was one major thing that I immediately noticed, because that was my favorite quote. Um, Their first fight between Canada and Tetsuo is in like, it, it winds up being in like the garbage heap or whatever and in the original line uh, canada's yelling at tetsuo and saying oh okay yeah now you're the king you're the king of trash mountain and that is (laughs) such a great line that is a line that i remembered through nearly 25 years and they changed it in the 2001 dub and they made it worse where he's like yeah you're the boss of the rubbish pile what Come on. You're the
0: boss of the rubbish pile? No, you're the king of Trash Mountain? You're the king of
1: Trash Mountain, because that's an awesome quote.
0: <laughs> well, and it's so... I mean, you are you have a brother. You know exactly how those fights go down, and that's exactly something you would say to a brother. Like, yes. oh, okay, yeah, you're the king. You're the king of Trash Mountain.
1: Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> so... That is my favorite quote of of any version, I think. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, before we get to our Oscars, there's something I'm I'm really fascinated to find out. So so you watched the sub. Yeah. How did we get Kevin Bacon?
0: Uh, by using the the dub. Uh, because I cheated. <laughs> Because it's still the same movie.
1: (laughs) Go on.
0: Well, so I couldn't find one using the sub. So Alex is like, is it cheating if we use the dub? And I was like, no, it's still Akira.
1: (laughs) I mean, hey, I watched the dub, so I I can't fault (laughs) you.
0: Do you want to hear my Kevin Bacon?
1: Yes, yes, I still do. All
0: right, Steve Bloom who was in Akira's dub as the male nurse resistance fighter one and reporter.
1: Also a, an excellent voice actor in his own right. Very good.
0: Yes. He was in all-star Superman with Ed Astor, who was in JFK with Kevin Dicken.
1: There you go. Okay. All right. And who did you do? So I... Um... I was a Power Rangers kid growing up until I was bullied for liking Power Rangers. But I have since grown past that, and I always loved the Power Rangers. Uh, Johnny Young Bosch was Adam, the Black Ranger, the second one. Um, And I've always enjoyed him. He's gone on to have quite a great voice acting career for himself uh, most notably he's the main character Vash in Trigun um but I stuck with my Power Rangers love and connected Johnny Young Bosch to Amy Jo Johnson Kimberly my first crush
0: sure. oh the girl that we all wanted to be we all wanted to be the pink ranger
1: <laughs> we all wanted to be the pink ranger or be with the pink ranger um or if if you are uh, of a incredible taste such as friend of the show matt calder and myself you wanted to be with suzy q <laughs> who oh. is why i have a crush on Joe johnson anyway <laughs> Power Rangers movie with Amy Joe Johnson. Amy Joe Johnson was in Hard Ground with Burt Reynolds, which is a pretty interesting looking cowboy movie that I have never seen before. But Burt Reynolds was in Starting Over with Kevin Bacon. So.
0: Cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Good
0: job. You know what's not cool?
1: Your Oscar. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. My Oscar for Akira goes to the grossest AI for Tetsuo's awful murder flesh arm. I don't like and it. I'm, I'm
1: so fascinated you stopped just the arm.
0: Well, there's a there's a lot, but the arm is what happens first. Indeed. <laughs> and I had a
1: pillow in front of my face which is very fair. You know, we we hardly talked about it, but I think when you when you talk about Akira to the layman, to somebody who like mm-hmm. knows what Akira is, but necessarily hasn't watched the movie in a long time, I think the first thing they think of is Tetsuo as a giant flesh monster baby thing. Like yeah. it is so iconic that South Park made fun of it and killed Rosie O'Donnell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um,
1: but no, it's it's gross. It's it's one of the grossest things ever in cinema, and and it's not great. poor, poor Cowrie getting crushed to death by a flush monster that a couple minutes ago was her boyfriend is one of the worst fates in all of cinema, I think. <laughs> uh my oscar is not gross but i think it, it probably is the other thing that like it's the first the first two things you think of when somebody talks about akira is mm-hmm. Flesh monster tetsuo and then the next thing is they think about the bike yeah kanada's red motorcycle is the coolest bike in all mm. movies i'm making the proclamation it i am more passionate about this oscar than i have been about one in a long time it is just the coolest sci-fi future bike and i love it i love that it's the poster it is like like sci-fi bike plus laser cannon equals yes please andy yes yes <laughs> i just i love the bike i love the bike so much i may have been looking at how much it would cost to get like a little canada on his motorcycle figurine and they are all outrageously expensive but i wouldn't know that because i wasn't doing that earlier today
0: no not at, not at all. all
1: i love that bike I, I will fight somebody that is the coolest friggin motorcycle in movies period
0: Well, if we ever get rich off of this podcast, Andy, tell you what, our first cool million can go towards buying you that bike.
1: Awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because people get rich off of podcasts. I can't finish. I mean,
1: I'm looking at you, McElroy Brothers and your media empire.
0: Oh. Well, they're very, very good boys, you see. They
1: are the best boys uh well i'm so glad you liked akira do you want to see if you like the next movie yes awesome uh everybody uh you know in in case this is your first episode which i mean hey it might be um every episode of cult fiction we put our hands in the hollywood crypt and let it decide our next movie through the application of a random number generator which we are going to do now we have 314 movies. We're working our way back down the list. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> and.
0: Ah! We have Anaconda, number not 104. Anaconda.
1: Not Anaconda. Not Anaconda. Uh... Returning to the podcast, Terry Gilliam under very different Uh. circumstances you know the last movie we watched Uh. he was a part of was monty python's life of brian and next time on cult fiction we will be watching terry gilliam's brazil 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 starring jonathan price and also kind of a mindfuck at the end so
0: okay i'm down
1: this is a this is a very good movie uh this is you will you will enjoy this movie. This is like this is if nineteen eighty-four was a satire.
0: Oh also, Andy, where can we watch Brazil? You can watch it on Voodoo, Stars, Google Play Movies TV, iTunes, and Amazon Prime Video for $3.99 rental fees.
1: Oh, there you go. <laughs> You did a much better job of finding it than I did.
0: That's okay. Google's a magical thing.
1: Indeed. Well, I'm using Google, so. Mm.
0: Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll close the clip for now.
1: But join us next time when we watch 1985's Brazil and a single fly changes our fate. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey.